Hi, I'm Shay. Shay Dahlia. You're listening to the Cuts and Biases podcast. I'm the producer, and this episode that you're listening to is the very first one I ever made. So it's not the most animated as far as the way I speak in it, but it's got a lot of information. So maybe it's better that I did speak really slowly in it. This episode aired in April 2021. Welcome to the show. My name is Shay Dahlia. You're going to hear stories today about racial identity with lots of facts and statistics to explain what's happening. If you're a person who's racialized, you're going to get a lot of information that you can apply to your own life. And if you're white, you're going to get a better understanding of your racialized friends and how to be a better ally. Let me give you a warning. This is going to be a brutally honest show. It's a difficult topic. It'll probably make you uncomfortable at times and maybe even offended. If you stick through it, you'll know what I mean. Please try, because even though it starts off with ugly emotions, it ends in a better place. But I'm taking you on the journey so you can see how I got there. Today's show is called How's Business because I own a one person hair studio. And that's the question people have been asking me throughout the pandemic. Let's begin. Mm, So I have something to tell you today. It doesn't start out good, but it does get better at the end. On March 19th, I was walking home sobbing. I'd started the month off bitter and resentful. Oh yeah. Because the salon revenue for February 2021 was less than March 2020. March 2020 was when there was a global lockdown. For half the month, I made zero income because I can't work from home. When I saw the numbers for the month of February 2021, my hair started falling out. And it's not better this month than numbers or my hair. Vancouver wasn't in the situation that Toronto's in. We weren't locked down for all these months. We were only locked down for the global lockdown. That was in March 2020. And it ended in May 2020. Was it that people didn't feel safe coming? In May 2020, as lockdown ended, a Vancouver-based beauty journalist, Aileen Lalor, posted this message on her social media. Salons in BC will be opening soon. If you want to check out what a really great salon reopening plan looks like, check out Poem Studios. It's detailed and specific, and the owner, Shay, has always worked out of a one-chair salon. And she said, so in her opinion, it's the safest place to get a cut in color in the city. By the way, salon safety plans were based on guidance from the Ministry of Health, WorkSafe BC, and if a health inspector comes around, they check them. The province's chief medical health officer, who was profiled by the New York Times for how well she was managing the pandemic, has said a number of times over the last 10 months that it's safe to go to salons. In fact, Dr. Bonnie Henry gets her hair done at a hair salon. The only time she didn't do that was during the lockdown, 
when she tried to do it herself. Oops. During the daily medical news updates, she said, quote, They say the number one thing not to do during a pandemic is your own hair, and I would say, believe them. End of quote. In the winter, she said, quote, We took measures that made those environments safe, such as in hair salons. When the rules are followed, we're not seeing transmission in these settings. People can feel safe going into a retail store or an office to get services. Even though she made that statement about hair salons, people didn't book. Not at my salon. December is guaranteed to be a busy month. It was the scariest month. There was a period over Christmas that I didn't have enough bookings to pay for the roof over my head by its due date. This had never happened before. Can you imagine? I, I, don't, think, I don't think anyone could until they're in the situation. When I was walking home on March 19th, I was still frustrated by a guy who came in for a haircut, who used to come every couple of months for years. He hadn't been in for nine months. For the last nine months, he's been going to work. He doesn't work from home. So he wasn't in that work-from-home rut. He said that work has been so busy and there's nowhere to spend all that money. Unlike my hours, my revenue, my paycheck, which have shrunk, 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 shrunk. Then he said, you decided to reduce your hours, eh? My thought was, I didn't reduce my hours, you guys reduced my hours. When he left, he looked 10 years younger. And he said, wow. And I said, yeah, right? You thought you were looking tired and old? You just needed haircuts. One of my clients, who's a nurse and a contact tracer, said that she thinks of me when she's talking to people about what they're doing at work. Because she said, you're doing everything right, Shay. Then she asked me, why do you think people aren't coming in? I don't know. Some of the reasons would be the same as they are for many businesses during the pandemic. But the percentage of loss above that? I've been thinking about that for almost a year. In the summer of 2020, I talked to an insider in the industry who liaisons with salons and stylists all over the city. I asked her how other stylists and salons were doing. She was surprised that it was so slow for me. She gave me some marketing tips. I also got some marketing advice from a marketing expert. However, months later, it's even slower than it was then. One of my side interests is mindfulness journeying, which is a guided meditative journey that's a creative way to get insight about a dilemma or a blind spot. So I did one to try to figure out what's going on here, because all the reasons that I had come up with are leaky, like excuses. They've all been debunked. Excuse number three. Is it the building? People are avoiding enclosed spaces, and there's an elevator. But there's also a staircase. Not the enclosed fire escape type. This one's a grand marble staircase 
double width open air. Then I spoke to an esthetician with a space that's similar to mine, except that their building doesn't have windows that open like mine does for airflow, and the elevator is the only way up. I asked how business was. She grinned. It was busier than ever, with a wait list of new clients. They hadn't done anything to make that happen. That didn't make sense to me. She's closer to people's faces than I am. At the time, it didn't cross my mind that she's white and that had anything to do with it. I'm brown. Second excuse, people are working from home, they're not coming downtown, they're avoiding public transit. That was true in the early months of the pandemic, but this is a year later. A year ago, the bridges were deserted. Now there's steady traffic coming over all the bridges, and you can walk across the bridges in about 15 minutes. My excuse didn't explain why people who live downtown weren't coming. Downtown Vancouver has dense residential neighborhoods, and so do the other sides of the bridges. In the summer of 2020, three months after salons had reopened from the lockdown, I was talking to a hairstylist who works downtown in a salon with other stylists. She said there wasn't a decline in her business at all. Not at all. I had assumed people would feel more comfortable coming to my salon where there weren't any other stylists or clients around. I was wrong. She messaged back, I hope it gets better for you soon. It must be so disheartening and scary. (laughs) She doesn't know what it's like. She's white. It echoes what white people say when I tell them racism has happened to me. When they're not saying, are you sure? Or not saying anything at all. They might say, I'm sorry that happened to you. But when I tell a person who's black or indigenous or a person of color, they nod knowingly. Is it racially motivated? In 2008, when the global stock market crashed and there was a global recession into 2009, when people were losing their jobs or fearing it, clients came in and told me that layoffs had happened where they worked or there had been other contractions that had happened and they feared losing their jobs or they said they had been laid off. People didn't know if it was going to get worse. I thought this would affect my business and that they would get haircuts less often. One afternoon, a client walked in and said he'd been laid off, just then. And he said so had dozens of others at the company he worked for. I had other clients who worked at that company. I thought, well, I better prepare for a drop in business. I didn't have a drop in business at all. It actually increased. And I didn't do anything to make that happen. But the economic crash didn't involve any racial fears or blame. It was caused by white men, for the most part. (laughs) 
In March 2021, I spoke to the person, who's the insider in the industry again, who liaisons with salons. She gave me an estimate of how much business was still down for salons, compared to a normal year. Mine was triple that. When I told her that my business was still down, she didn't respond. She's white. It was kind of like a, sorry kiddo, you're on your own. Like it wasn't a problem for the industry. I searched online. I couldn't find anybody else talking about this. My friend who lives in another province said, I don't mean to be unkind, but people here go to salons when they're open, like where she lives. Around the same time, I spoke to someone who works in the dental industry, who's in touch with many dentists. They were really busy. Is it because people are catching up on their cavities from not going last year? I assumed that people hadn't been. He said, no, it's cosmetic. People want to look good on Zoom. I said, they could get haircuts to look good on Zoom, and they're masked while they're getting it, unlike at the dentist. A haircut is like a picture frame around your face. It can make such a difference, and I stopped myself. Oh, of course, they are getting haircuts. I was starting to suspect that this was about me. I looked online at 25 random salons in the city. None of them had a hairstylist that was brown or black. Hmm, they're not at the same racial intersection as me. I'll have to look into this myself. By intersection, I mean how I'm seen as a racialized brown person and how that crosses with being a hairstylist. Message to a white friend. Hey, do you remember that time we went shopping and you put on a blouse from the rack and then walked around the store shopping in it? And I was shocked. I was looking around to see where are the security people. That is not something that I'd be allowed to do. When I'm at a store and I'm looking at toques, not even touching them, the undercover detective is right there beside me. In January, I went to the grocery store and had a memorable experience. My neighborhood is mostly white and of East Asian descent. So almost everyone is a lighter shade of skin tone than my brown skin. Message to a friend continued. I walked into the grocery store and turned towards the fruits and vegetables. Immediately, the security guard who was at the door turned his head. He followed me to the bananas, stood by some other vegetables, and pretended to touch them, which is creepy in its own way, while looking at me. I haven't even shopped for anything in the store yet. All the bananas are green. Fact. In 2020, the Pew Research Center in Washington, D.C. did a survey. The people who were least worried about wearing a mask in a store and being seen as suspicious were white people. Only 5% worried about that. That's from a survey titled, Many Black and Asian Americans Say They Have Experienced Discrimination Amid the COVID-19 Outbreak. Now back to where I left off. That same week, I was in another store. They'd moved the cashiers away from the front door. I was looking for where they were. I was still far away from the front door, among the merchandise. I turned around to see if they were at the back of the store. And as I turn around, 
there's a security guy ready to pounce on me. He had to jump back. Was he thinking that I was going to bolt for the door? I asked him where the cashier was. And then I could feel his eyes following me there. Statistics Canada did a survey in the summer of 2020, which they said couldn't be generalized to the overall population. Almost one half of the Black and South Asian participants said that during the pandemic, they were discriminated against in stores, restaurants, and banks. That's from the survey, Experiences of Discrimination During the COVID-19 Pandemic. Over the last year, I used the advice from the marketing expert to try to rebuild my business. But I didn't realize I was up against the daily news headlines that the highest COVID cases were in the areas where there's a concentration of South Asian Canadians in a Toronto district and in Surrey, which is a city, a part of Metro Vancouver. And now in April, the headlines are panicking about this new variant, banning flights from India. At the same time, there's all the articles about South Asian Canadians right here, but they don't call them Canadians, they just call them South Asians. So they're not really one of us. I mean, that means me too. I'm not one of us. It makes me wince for my livelihood. People don't see a person of South Asian descent as an individual. They see a member of a homogenous group. I don't know the commuting time to get to Surrey because I've only been there once in my life. People look shocked when I say that, but I don't have a reason to go. It's not my community. The one time I was in Surrey, it wasn't for a big Indian wedding. It was in the year that I said I would say yes to anything I was invited to. And a white friend invited me to watch amateur wrestling in Surrey and watch them break chairs over each other's backs. I'd say that 99% of the people in the gymnasium were white, plus a clown. At the end of March, a video was leaked of a party in a resort town in BC, where people broke the restrictions, crowded a bar with no masks. In the video, all the people dancing on tables are white. From what I can see, everybody there is white. And in a town called Big White. Big White. It didn't make me mistrust all white people for COVID. They were white individuals. But when you're brown, you get stigmatized with how other brown people are perceived, even if you're not a part of that community or culture. Or country or religion, such as after 9-11. That was the first time I noticed people glaring at me. A recent time that somebody glared at me was last summer. It was on a wide sidewalk. There was a couple walking towards me. They were still over 25 feet away. The man pulled the woman in front of him and they kept walking. Usually people go single file when they're just about to pass you. I assumed he was being considerate, though he did it far in advance, as if he saw danger ahead. When they passed me, he put his arms in the space around her, like not on her, but around her to protect her. I smiled. She smiled back. He didn't. He glared at me. And I thought, 
Maybe he didn't see my smile quick enough to smile back. But she had. Afterwards, I wondered why he repositioned the woman when they were still so far away. Fact. I read in a research paper a summary of other research that people of an outgroup perceived as a threat were judged as physically closer than they are. Presumably, they said, to prepare for fight or flight. That's from Proximity Under Threat, The Role of Physical Distance in Intergroup Relations by psychologists from NYU and Canada's Carleton University in 2016. Back to the guy on the sidewalk. That bodyguard movement he did around that woman? It reminded me of years ago, before I moved to Vancouver. I was visiting here with a boyfriend, and downtown, we unintentionally walked through a crowd of people that were doing drugs and selling drugs. It was probably the downtown east side of Vancouver. They were jostling around us, and he did that. He moved me in front of him and had his arms around me in that same way as we walked through there. Now that guy on the sidewalk did that with that woman. He thought of me as a threat. Fact. In the survey from Stats Canada in the summer of 2020, titled Experiences of Discrimination During the COVID-19 Pandemic, one-third of the people surveyed said they had been discriminated against in a public area such as a sidewalk. People of Chinese and Filipino descent reported it the most. The most disturbing videos were the ones of individuals shoving elderly senior citizens to the ground just because they look Chinese. That act isn't new. It's just being caught on camera now. It happened to my grandmother decades ago on the street we lived on in Victoria. She was out for a stroll, dressed in traditional Indian clothes. Some guy pushed her over. In the same Stats Canada survey, about 40% of the people who said that they had been discriminated against, also reported that they had a weaker sense of belonging to the local community. Over some, could that be worded as, the community makes them feel like they don't belong. From the first person in my family who came to Canada, there have been a lot of descendants born here, all the way to great-great-grandchildren. The youngest one was born this month. We still get asked where we're from. I mean where we are really from. Where we're, where we're, <laughs> that's a tongue twister. Where we, where we are really from. Where we're really from. Where we are really from. We are from here. Inter-ethnic threat. Inter-group threat. Between an in-group and an out-group. In this case, it's racial groups. The in-group is the majority, which is white. The out-group is a minority group. But I have to add that people from other out-groups of minority populations see their own group as their in-group, and they see other minority groups as out-groups. A person in an in-group who has intergroup anxiety tends not to think of a person from the out-group as an individual, but symbolic of a homogenous group. 
In the theory of perceived intergroup threat, among the causes of anxiety between groups is the perceived threat to health and safety from an outgroup. Other researchers have found that feelings of anger and fear about outgroups can lead to anger turning to aggressive behavior. Well, you don't need a degree to know that. But fear, it turns into avoiding contact with anyone from the outgroup. Reason number one racial bias, unconscious racial bias, consumer unconscious racial bias. When the client who is a nurse had asked me, Why do you think people aren't coming in? I didn't want to see the elephant in the room, the Indian elephant. However, this March, when I was open to seeing other perspectives in a mindfulness inner journey, this is what showed up. Even then, I said, Don't say it out loud. It'll stigmatize me. Ignore it. But if I don't look at it, I'm colluding with racism about me. Warning if you're white and you got this far in listening, this next thought might not be about you. Throughout my life, I've never wanted to see the racism that affects me personally. I've actively not. More often, I'd blame myself. I've even said I'm not going to say it was racism that was the reason for something happening to me. I'm going to ignore it. And when I said that, white people around me have nodded in approval that that's what I should do. That's happened a lot. Probably because that's what they do. And like I said earlier, when racialized people nod, it's when they recognize their own experience in it. And those are the times when white people say nothing. But when I say I'll ignore it, they nod in approval. Because that's their experience. That's what they do. They deny it. Ignore it. The mindfulness inner journey helps you see blind spots in your self-awareness. When racism showed up in it, I reluctantly challenged myself to look at this hidden perspective and I applied the facts to myself. Remember it didn't make sense to me that the other two women didn't have a drop in business like I did? From Statistics Canada's report, Impact of COVID-19 on Businesses Majority Owned by Visible Minorities, third quarter of 2020. Compared to 2019, one quarter of all private sector businesses had no change in revenue in 2020. One-fifth of businesses, majority owned by racialized people, had no change. And almost half of businesses majority owned by racialized people reported a 30% or more decrease in revenue. Less than one-third of all private sector businesses said the same. True story. Happened more than once, more than twice, more than three times before 2020. A new client would come in. They could be white or a person of color. They would tell me that the last stylist 
didn't cut their hair the way they wanted it cut, and they'd blame it on the stylist's race. But only if the stylist isn't white. If it was a white stylist, they would say it's because the stylist didn't listen to them. Like, is that something they would consciously write down in a social media post? But they say it impulsively. It leaks out of them. There's this bias that they don't know they have until they're frustrated and they don't know why something happened to them. Sounds kind of like COVID, doesn't it? People don't know where COVID came from, so they take it out on people who look like the other. Either they attack them verbally or physically, or they stay far away from them. Fact. In 2006, Princeton researchers studied faces and found that people make a first impression of someone in one-tenth of a second, especially for trustworthiness. That's from the research paper First Impressions by Willis and Todorov. A social psychologist wrote an article in 2018 titled Studying First Impressions, What to Consider. Irma Ochten wrote that in job interviews, employers tend to ask questions that confirm their first impressions and then treat the job applicants in ways that are consistent with their first impressions. Employers are human. What they're doing, we're all doing. True story. It's happened more than once, more than twice, more than three times. A person visited my website and made a first impression about me based on my skin color. They book an appointment, and when they come in, before they even sat down or told me about their hair, they ask me where I'm from. It doesn't matter that my answer is a Canadian city. They treat me consistent with that first impression. One person, after they paid and about to walk out the door, they asked me again, where are you from? Earlier, they had asked where I'd grown up, and I told them where, and now they had reframed that question. And when I said, I already told you, oh, you're really from there. I thought you meant that's just where you grew up and you weren't born there. Really? The next time someone like that returns, they'll mention the South Asian Canadian community that's close to Vancouver and say, your people. Once somebody asked me about your people in India, I said, I don't know what they're thinking. My people are Victorians from Victoria on Vancouver Island, which this person already knew. They have this need to connect me to a community of ethnic brown people in this country or another country that I didn't say I'm a part of or identify with. They can't seem to see me as a Vancouver Islander mixed in with all types of people or as a part of their own community here in Vancouver, as a part of their in-group. Even racialized people who immigrated here have said to me, how can you be from here? You're not white. What? It's in the collective conscience. Then the pandemic happens. Hypothetically, I don't know because I haven't seen them, they're still thinking of me by their first impressions. That hairstylist, her people, are getting the virus more. I don't feel safe going to her. That might not be words that are said, 
It could be an unconscious bias that comes out as an uneasy feeling, not attached to any thought. Making decisions from false first impressions can have broader impact than just on your personal choice, especially when many people are doing it at the same time during a pandemic. Remember I asked if you knew what it was like to not be able to make the payment for the roof over your head? Fact. In July 2020, Statistics Canada reported that during the pandemic, 23% of white people weren't able to meet their financial obligations. For most racialized people in their survey, it was in the 30s and 40s. That's from a report titled Impact of COVID-19 Among Visible Minority Groups. In March, a Canadian doctor publicized racist comments that were made about him. He's based in Burnaby, which is a part of Metro Vancouver. He was in a video talking about the pandemic on a Vancouver news channel. He's Sikh and wears a turban. People posted racist comments about him that linked his race to his credibility. Dr. Narang tweeted, Unfortunately, we are conditioned to expect these. It has been part of my training. There's a video that shows what they have to put up with. In 2017, someone caught on video a Karen in Canada. She was at a clinic in Ontario demanding to see a white doctor. She refused to see any of the racialized doctors and said it in very colorful language. There's actually a number of articles about Canadian healthcare workers who are people of color speaking out about racism from patients. When I read what the patients think about them, then I speculate, is that happening to me? In the medical system, patients often don't have a choice of what doctors they see, and that's why they say this up front, to their faces. But when they're looking for a hairstylist, they can browse online and keep those thoughts to themselves and just move on to the next person. Then I see that me posting on my website about my COVID safety plan would make no difference. It's not a leap to think that customer preference is influenced by racial bias, especially during the pandemic. Like other people that had racial biases or prejudices that they suppressed because it isn't culturally acceptable. I'm not racist. I have a black friend. I'm not racist. I see a hairstylist that's not white until it's inconvenient. But now that it's encouraged to avoid people, and that's how you're judged as a good person, have they justified who they are avoiding based on those hidden thoughts about race? And who they think is safe, who's most like them? Fact. In 2003, researchers developed a model for the suppression and justification of prejudices. Crandall and Eshleman from the U.S., wrote that a person covers up a prejudice that motivated their behavior with a rationale that's acceptable. I mean, socially acceptable. And in this way, discrimination is justified with no consequences to their reputation. 
Right now, it's socially acceptable to avoid people. So there's no consequence to your reputation. Another study I'll tell you about in a minute describes that behavior as implicit discrimination, which means you're not aware you're doing it. The average amount of time a person spends browsing a new website is about 15 to 45 seconds before they hop off and check out the next one. And that's how quickly someone would be making a decision about which hairstylist to pick on the website. And possibly, with a split-second, implicit racial bias. And they click away to a different website. It's a snap decision. Or maybe they linger on the page, and they think of choosing the stylist, but she's different from them. Normally, that wouldn't matter to them. The thought comes up, maybe I don't need a haircut right now. I don't feel safe going to a salon. Are they being cautious because of her race? Because of the news headlines about people of her race? Even though she's an individual? Just as each white person isn't the people who look like them in the news? The anti-vaxxers? A week later, they're searching online again. They come across a hairstylist that's a white man. They book an appointment. A number of years ago, I read a study about racialized people being overlooked for jobs because of their names, because of name discrimination. So back then, I thought that it would make it easier for people to know how to say my name. It's spelled S-H-A-I. If on my website, I spelled it S-H-A-Y. The study also found that people thought that ethnic-sounding names belonged to people who would have language difficulties and weren't really from here. My name isn't necessarily ethnic, but my face is on my website. And there have been times in my life when strangers in public have jumped to the conclusion that I can't speak English because I don't want to talk to them. So after reading that study, I thought I'd make it easier on my website for people to know that I do speak English well. So I put in my bio that I'm born here. From doing that and changing the spelling of my name, what I found was that I got busier. I would never do that again because there was a higher number of people coming in that were anxious and uncomfortable and I heard more racial stereotypes. For the first time in my career, I stress cried afterwards. The research study was titled, Why do some employers prefer to interview Matthew, but not Samir? It's from 2012 by researchers DeChief and Oropolis at the University of Toronto about Canadian employers choosing to call back applicants with English names, on average, 35% more often than their applicants with Indian, Chinese, or Pakistani names, even when they had all Canadian qualifications. Most of the employers assumed a non-English name meant it was a recent immigrant. It was a signal that the applicant may lack language or social skills. Employers assumed it's less likely to be challenging for them with someone with an English name. The words they used evoked a predictable outcome. 
such as there's a comfort factor. But not all of them were aware they were discriminating. They were defaulting in split-second decisions to their implicit racial biases. And though it wasn't spelled out, the opposite assumptions about the ethnic names would be unpredictable and discomfort. You may say that, that was 2012, that's a long time ago. Things have changed now. Well, the researchers did more work on this in 2017, and the results were similar for businesses with less than 50 employees. I opened my studio 14 years ago. This March was its anniversary. Normally, this would be a moment of levity. No, <laughs> sorry. It had taken years to build up my clientele. Then it was wiped out last year. And people are making decisions from their gut, fears, which are directed by implicit biases. That's the opposite of how the province's chief health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, has based her decisions on data. This month, in March 2021, she said, we are not seeing transmission from personal service settings like hairdressers. It's because we know that people are taking precautions, that there are small numbers of people going in one at a time. This time, unlike December when she said that, I didn't feel hopeful. Remember that esthetician? who works in a building like mine? I spoke to her again this month. She said that she's still busy. She showed me her calendar to prove that she's booked up, like normal times, which still are normal times for her. I said, I think it's racism. <gasps> she said, I didn't think of that. I didn't either. She didn't look away. I felt a tear perched at the corner of my eye, and I willed it not to fall over the edge. She said, fear is a strong force. It makes people break bonds with people they've known for years. She didn't say, I'm sorry that happened to you, or stay silent, or doubt me, or blame me. She reacted viscerally because she's seen this behavior before in the country she grew up in. I said, this has always been here. The stereotyping, the scapegoating, the constant hum of it, the way people for years have talked about Chinese people in Vancouver. Every day in small talk. Now look how that's blown up. She looked slightly away. Her eyes looked like she was recalling something that she used to be aware of. As I was talking, I tripped over a memory. Years ago, I had told her not to badmouth people of East Asian descent anymore. At the time, I had come from getting a blood test, and I had told the man there that I was glad that I'd gotten him again. It was because of him that I was no longer scared of needles. He had a way about him that calmed me down. Then I saw her, and I told her where I'd been. She said that she didn't like the staff there because of their work performance, 
and she blamed it on their race. I got so hot-tempered about it, and I told her, don't talk like that around me again. She said, it's what I see. I said, you see what you want to see. Anyway, I think it's racism. All the other reasons feel like grasping at distractions, like gaslighting. When I say racism, it feels like a sinkhole. It's so big, vast, invisible. People can't see it. A sinkhole forms when the foundation beneath the surface softens, dissolves, and creates holes. It's hidden from the surface until the empty spaces underground grow so large that the ground above has nothing to support it and collapses into them. I used to ignore the pitfalls. There's data for my eyes to see what I couldn't see before and honestly didn't want to believe before. I believed that if I didn't look at it and ignored it, I could overcome it and so be like white people. But it has to be looked at to be eradicated. For everyone's benefit, not just for my own step up the ladder. Racism isn't only the acts of hate and aggression that are reported in the news. It's more commonly insidious and hidden in private decisions that show up anonymously in statistics. It's intergroup anxiety about health and safety that in people's minds justifies their racial bias because it's not based on hate like the actions they see in the news. It's based on caution and it's implicit, expressed through discomfort, not a thought. But it's also covert. It's being not racist when it's convenient to themselves and being secretly racially biased when it's convenient, when it can be covered up in a socially acceptable excuse. It's okay to be avoiding people right now. It's weirdly socially responsible behavior. But do you do it with a flicker of a thought about race? So quick that you consciously don't catch yourself doing it? Bonus reason. Pre-pandemic, I used to give my friend weekly updates of the racialized comments I'd heard in the salon. Some ignorant, some offensive. Usually unintentionally. She once said, Who are these people? I said, All kinds of people. People who identify as not racist. In this last year, guess how many times it happened? Not even once. Not at all. 
the kinds of people who say such things, didn't come in. But to be clear, they're not racist people. But that's not the same as being anti-racist, anti-anti-racist. It's not even about being anything. It's about the choices you make. A choice you make is either racist or anti-racist. It fluctuates with every decision you make. So you have to be aware of it all the time. You can't get away with saying, I'm not racist, so I don't have to think about it. Uh, no, that's not how it works. That concept was developed by Ibram Kendi. He's a leading expert on anti-racism research. He wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. To be fair, there are white people who have believed me and shown solidarity, but only in the recent years, and mostly since what happened in Charlottesville in 2017, you know, the torch rally. One time pre-pandemic, a white client in the salon said something in support of racism on purpose. I took care of it, but one white man later gave me helpful advice on what to say if I had to talk to that man again. Another white man got visibly upset and said he didn't want that person back in here. That may not sound like a big deal to say that, but a lot of people make excuses for people or don't think it's a big deal. So the fact that somebody did and showed support that way, unfortunately, it's not a more common response. So it stands out. A woman who's white said, this is your safe place. And it shouldn't be something you have to deal with outside of the bigger world. Another man said that when his parents' friends make racist comments, he tells them, you're talking about my friends. Those are the types of people that I've been booking regularly throughout the pandemic. Anti-racist people. It was the most pleasant year of work. Without that low-grade harassment, I was able to work in peace. I consistently did better hair than I have ever done before. The room also feels better. The energy in it is fresh. You know, pre-pandemic, when a client moved on, it would be ambiguous to me for a while. That's business as usual. But after lockdown ended, almost all my clients were in the ambiguous zone. For the whole year. I was in shock. It's unimaginable that this could happen. That you could lose so many clients in one swipe. I was stunned. That's how I was for months and months. The names of some former clients would pop into mind. People who used to come on a regular schedule, but hadn't been in since pre-pandemic. No other thoughts about them would come into my mind. Just their names. It's like they symbolized a group of similar clients who hadn't come back. Along with the names, there would be a momentary twinge of anxious energy.
Synonyms for momentary. Transient. Transitory. Temporary. Fleeting. Flash. Think of it like a bee landing on your arm. Instantly, you'd feel anxious. Before you can shake it off, it's gone. It would return the next day when another name popped into my head. It was also happening with the name of a former friend. Or maybe she still was a friend. I didn't know. It was in the same ambiguous zone. She lives on my street, and we had been walking buddies over the summer. There was a big social hole with her gone, because there had been five months of health restrictions against meeting with friends. And she had dropped out of communication months ago. Eventually I knew that former clients wouldn't be returning, and enough time had passed without the friendship to know that it wouldn't be returning to what it was. But I couldn't stop the names from popping up. So what did I do? On March 10th, I did a mindfulness session, plus one with the chakras, to clear out the static energy. I know that won't make any sense to you unless you've experienced it. The first time for me was in 2013. The chakra system is an ancient Indian wellness concept, as is yoga and meditation. The chakras represent areas of the body where we transfer a lot of energy, such as the throat where we speak. A session balances the overcharged chakras. If you've ever said OM in a yoga class, you've felt the energy I work with. Synonyms for energy Chi, Ki, Prana, Chakra, Vibe. It feels like OM breath in the flow. In early March, a client who's a doctor and who's been booking appointments regularly asked me her usual question because she can't figure out why people aren't coming either. She said, how's business? Last time she asked me that, I had said, I don't want to talk about it. This time I said, it still sucks. I wasn't upset after saying it. I told her, surprisingly, I'm not bitter or resentful after saying that. I don't know why. After she left, I remembered why. It was because I did the mindfulness journeying and the work in the chakras a few days before that to clear out the energy that I was still carrying around from those feelings. And what had come up in that session had liberated me. That twinge of anxiousness I was feeling, I had felt that when my parents separated. I had been feeling the same energy that was in that anxious moment back then about not knowing what's going to happen, and as a child, not having any control of it. When my parents separated, my mother didn't tell me that we weren't going back to the family home. I thought we'd be going back. She didn't tell that right away. I had that hope, and I kept wondering, when are we going to do that? That was always there, that anticipation. Then one day I found out the truth. We were never going back. Then I tucked it away, that whole expression. And it surfaced again, now, because this situation is similar. 
last year, in March 2020, when most people in the world were told to separate themselves from everything in their lives and stay home for two weeks. We weren't told how long it would really be. And me not being able to work at all from home, I was anticipating when I could go back. When my parents separated, we were left in a precarious situation financially. And now, I'm in that situation again. And when I was a kid, I was bitter and resentful about that, and for being separated from my friends. My friend, who was in the same grade as me, lived on the same street. We would walk to or from school together. That's why I was feeling separation anxiety about the walking buddy up the street. It's like that charged emotion from when I was a kid over separation was flickering on and off now. The chakra session cleared that out. It's been over a month now. I have not felt that energy again. I'm not bitter or resentful. Former clients' names aren't popping in my head anymore. I haven't had that twinge of anxious energy. I feel at peace. This doesn't mean that I don't have sadness and other emotions coming up. I definitely do. But I feel them now. Before, all I felt was resentment and bitterness. I was stuck there. The other half of that session was the mindfulness journey that showed me the blind spot in my business. It made way for me to be open to other possibilities than the one that stuck on repeat. It's like when you're driving in heavy rain. The windshield wipers only let you see enough to get by in a repetitive way. Then the weather system changes, or in this case, the chakra system. The wind blows the clouds away, and you can see what had been blurry in the rain. On March 19th, when I left work to start walking home, there were other people walking home from work too. I hadn't seen this in months and months, and there were a lot of cars like a normal after-work day. It really upset me, because my business was still stuck in the time when the streets were deserted. It debunked the excuse that everyone kept saying to me that other people would return to the salon when they returned downtown. Now it was clear. That's not going to happen for me. Up until then, I'd felt hope whenever I saw traffic pick up, and then I'd feel let down, because it didn't change the work situation. It would entrench into bitterness and resentment. Now that that energy was gone, I could realize other feelings and truths, which you heard throughout this podcast. This is from a Stats Canada report titled, Impact of COVID-19 on Businesses Majority Owned by Specific Populations. First quarter of 2021. It found out if business is expected to have a decline in business in the next three months. 31% of all businesses did. For businesses of racialized people, it was 44%. And a decrease in profitability? 
43% of all businesses, 58% of businesses owned by racialized people. You decided to reduce your hours, eh? I turned on a podcast to distract my thoughts. The podcast guest was Chipper. In a huff, I turned it off. The rain was starting to spit in the atmosphere. I put up my hood. I searched for another track. But everything I downloaded, I'd heard before. Then I saw a track that I downloaded months ago. The Solfeggio Frequency 528. As I walked, listening to the first notes, feeling defeated by racism, immediately the music felt like my mother hugging me. I haven't hugged my mother, not in months, which has been common for people during the pandemic. Not in years. She died years ago. I started to cry, and then sob, and sob. And through the Solfeggio frequency, I rested in her hug as I walked home. And I didn't care if people could see me crying. The people in the cars. Just like children who don't care if people see them crying. And that's how I was. They can't see me crying with my hood on and the wind blowing hair over my eyes. By the time I got home, I had stopped crying. I took some time out to listen to some new music. There was a critic's review of a singer's new album. The critic said that the singer was acting like he'd made What's Going On. I wondered, what's that? What's what's going on? It's a classic album from 1971 that somehow I missed knowing about. The title song has the words Mother Crying loving, and dying in the first verse. As I was listening, I was thinking about what am I going to do for plan B to supplement my income. In the last few years, I have had a side project. Creatives have hired me to help them get creatively unstuck using mindfulness and chakra energy. And this year, I facilitated a couple anti-racism workshops for self-development to see your blind spots about racism. But who am I to do that? I turned on another song from that album. The title was Right On. That was that era slang word for approval and encouragement. <laughs> I laughed. I'm on the right track. Links to the facts I referenced are in the show notes at heyshay.com, H-E-Y-S-H-A-I. Hey, if you're anti-racist and you need a haircut or color in Vancouver, look me up. I'm at Poem Studio. The website is poem.ca. P as in pony, O, M as in mullet, E. Hi, this is an update from the future. In 2023, I closed Poem Studio. The new website is www.shay.hair, S-H-A-I dot H-A-I-R.
When I was doing that podcast, I didn't think anyone would believe me because I didn't have the actual facts that I needed, but I found them in 2022. I found out that during the time I was wondering what's going on and researching my podcast, American researchers were collecting data on pandemic discrimination. And one report was published in the American Journal of Public Health from a study done in December 2020 to February 2021. The result was that all racial ethnic groups experienced higher levels of COVID-related discrimination than white people did, such as people acting afraid of them. More than half of the people who experienced it said discrimination occurred sometimes or always. The researchers found that it was much higher than in 2020. Who was doing the discriminating? A lot of people. The report said that the pandemic had exasperated pre-existing resentment among racial ethnic groups, and that 42% of all adults in the U.S. are extremely likely to engage in anti-Asian behaviors during the pandemic. The survey included Asian Americans from ethnicities that were Indian, Chinese, Filipino, and other countries. In Canada, one of the first groups that was stigmatized besides the Chinese were people of Filipino descent, because one of the first mass outbreaks was in a meatpacking factory in Alberta that employed a lot of people of Filipino descent. I read news articles at that time that speculated the cause was their lifestyles. It later came out that it was the employer's fault because there wasn't enough room to social distance. They were overcrowded, but the harm to their reputation was already done. And then in 2021, when I was doing this podcast, it was people who looked South Asian. In late April 2021, on a Saturday, I was walking home from work it was about 10 o'clock in the morning. I started work at 8.30 a.m. And I was already walking home. This had never happened before the pandemic. I passed a salon. It was like a normal Saturday in there. At that time, you were allowed to have people in a salon, socially distanced. This place did, but there were about 15 people in there. A man had his young son with him. The front door was closed and there weren't any windows open for airflow. So it wasn't like people were afraid to be around people. They were all in there, and they were all white. Well, my salon was me, just me, and one client in the room at a time, with them facing an open window. And people weren't coming. This was new for me, to notice white people, because I had grown up, taught in school and in Canadian culture, not to see white color or call it out as such, and to do so is gauche. That was the week in Canadian news that the headlines were calling for a ban on flights from India. The Vancouver Sun's headline was, COVID-infected people arrive in BC from India as Trudeau ponders flight restrictions. In the small print in that article, it said, during the same period, infected people also arrived in Vancouver from Amsterdam and the US. But people read the headlines, they don't read the small print. The flight ban for India was in the news for months, until the end of September 2021. My business hadn't picked up, even though the general public had been getting vaccinated since April. And Vancouver's mayor, Kennedy Stewart, had said on September 1st, in a tweet, that Vancouver's vaccination rate was over 90% for at least one shot. Fact a global research company that's been around for 50 years called IBIS World did a report on hair and nail salons in Canada. 
the average decrease in revenue in 2020 was 25%. As you know, as I said in my podcast, mine was much higher than that. There are a lot of reasons for why people didn't come in that were normal and every salon and every hairstylist experienced them. But what I'm talking about here is the extra percentage, the reasons that are not the usual normal reasons that we associate with the pandemic. In late June of 2021, I heard an interview with the CEO of a hair brand, a white American. Salons he had spoken to had all said that they were doing great. Some of them had had their best year. He said, the salons that didn't make it through were weak anyway, and they just failed sooner than later. He said people who were making money before the pandemic made money through it. That was hard for me to take because my business revenue had been going up and up and up every year and hit a peak at 2019 and then fell off a cliff because of the pandemic. This CEO man was basically blaming someone like me rather than all these stats out there that I have that prove that it could be something else happening here. And then he said that the better quote, better salons had clientele that were of a higher economic bracket. So did I. I had all types. One of them called right after the Indian flight ban ended. The type of white person that I mentioned in the podcast who would say, your people when talking about India, I could tell that his last haircut hadn't been cut at home unless he'd had a hairstylist come to his home. I overheard a hairstylist in Vancouver saying that that's what he did in the first year. He went to people's homes. At that time period when I was thinking people weren't coming to see me because they were afraid to be close to hairstylists. And he's not the only one that I've heard of. In the podcast that I mentioned with the CEO in it, there was a Canadian hairstylist on there who talked about hairstylists in Ontario working from home or traveling to people's homes when the government had said the salons were not allowed to be open. So there were people that weren't afraid of being close to hairstylists. I was stunned. The reason I had thought people hadn't come to see me was because they were afraid of being near hairstylists, because that was the only reason I could think of for why people wouldn't have come into my one chair salon, was that they didn't want to be around other people, that they didn't want to take a risk. But there were people letting this hairstylist into their homes. Can I give you another example? In another podcast, in 2023, a white hairstylist made a generalized comment to an audience of hairstylists about their businesses. He said, quote, the inflated successes of 2020 to 2022. He said that like a matter of fact and kept going with what he was talking about. You might say that's all anecdotal. Fact. There's another study that was done at the same time as when I was doing this podcast in March 2021 by American sociologists at the University of Georgia. They were assessing the causal link between the pandemic and racial discrimination. This one assessed white Americans' hidden behavior when there's a threat of a pandemic about people who are Black, Hispanic, or Asian American. And by Asian American, it means East Asian and South Asian. The results weren't published until 2022, and they made me very sad, because I was right. With the pandemic in mind, they were less interested in contacting potential roommates that were Americans that looked Hispanic, East Asian, and South Asian. 
Who was making these choices quietly from behind their computer screens? The white participants weren't the stereotype of a less educated person. You know, like the better clientele at the better salons. 60% had degrees. Over 60% were women. 47% were liberal and 30% were conservative. The study was done about who they would want in close proximity to them as roommates. And that could also apply to hairstylists that they would allow in their homes. Or maybe who they'd want to be alone with in a one-room salon. A lot of good-hearted people were generous in Canada, the United States, and bought from their local brick-and-mortar businesses to keep them going. I greatly appreciate the clients that did that for me. However, the study found that generosity wasn't equally distributed. The white participants were also less generous with financial support to Americans perceived as East or South Asian. This was when they were told ahead of time that there was a disease threat linked to Asia, countries in East Asia and South Asia. The researchers said that white Americans may act in these biased ways when the media frames a disease as a threat from Asia. In 2022, another white person from the upper financially secure class who used to get haircuts on a regular schedule and had stopped booking for two years booked with me when the risk of COVID had receded enough that the health chief ended the indoor mask advisory. He'd been working downtown and had been getting his haircut somewhere else. He actually tried to think out loud of an excuse and couldn't come up with one. Now he wanted to return to his regular schedule with me. By then, I was grateful that I'd lost all the people like him. I had an opportunity to restructure my business with people who are racially inclusive no matter what. It was hard and isolating to go through the last three years alone that I decided when my salon lease expired in 2023 to go work with people, but as an independent stylist. While I was looking, I was a guest at one salon where one of my white clients noticed something. They said, you're the only person who's not white in this entire place, like including the clients. I said, I know, I'm used to it. I didn't know where I'd end up. I found a place that's the only hair salon I'd seen in my search that has a racially diverse staff and clientele. I work at a salon where the staff are people of color. I've never worked in a place where I have not been the only or one of the only people of color. This is new for me, and it's great. On the six-month anniversary of closing my salon, I posted an update on Instagram, and this is what I wrote. It's been six months since I closed Home Studio. Yesterday, a newer client who started seeing me within the last six months told me why she likes the way I cut her hair and how my combination of cutting and styling is different from how other stylists had done it. She said that for her entire life, she'd styled it to control it. Now I was cutting it to allow her hair to do what it wants to do. And people are telling her she looks better. I said that the other way on hair looked austere. But when she speaks, she is warm and soft. Now when she walks into a room, how she looks matches how she sounds. She said, you could open your own salon. I was taken aback. I said, no one has ever said that to me before. Because I had my own salon for 16 years. I closed it six months ago. What she said is the best compliment because I've already done it. And it reminds me of what I accomplished that most stylists never do. 
That's also why I had to leave Poem behind. It was time to do a new impossible and make a career that unites what I'm now becoming, which you know from listening to this podcast. I also wrote, sometimes I get discouraged because I'm still in the thickets of forging a path at the fork in my road. Then I want to turn back to what I know, to poem that rhymes with home. But synchronicities keep happening that are encouraging. I share a story about one of those in a podcast episode. It had had a small number of listeners, which was discouraging and made me want to give up. But then I remembered the story that I shared in it. The universe is listening. You'll know what I mean if you listen to the episode. I still facilitate the anti-racism workshop to get insight into what you don't know you don't know about your implicit racial biases. That is what led me to do this entire podcast because it was when I did that in January of 2021. The experience that I had in that started to make sense to me in the weeks between doing the workshop and doing this podcast. The elephant in the room about the biases that I didn't want to see around me slowly started to make sense over the weeks that led me up to the moment of walking home the first time in the podcast and doing all the research and everything after that. And what happened in that workshop felt very real and didn't feel clouded like everything else was. That was the guidance that I kept throughout doing this podcast, even though nobody else was recognizing what I was saying I was now seeing. That is what I offer now in those workshops. It keeps your passion going when you just want to give up on it. And I also do chakra sessions like that as well that help creatives, especially to find their direction like I did and to get themselves back in flow like I have as they pursue a new direction in their careers. I'm doing everything that I said I wanted to do in this podcast but it's all come from inside me. It's all come from my own guidance. There hasn't been anybody else saying, you should do this. And that's what I create in my workshops is that space for them to have that experience so that whenever they have that doubt and want to give up and go back to what was comfortable, they can say to that part of themselves that's doubtful, what have you ever done for me, Mr. Doubt? What? What have you ever done that creates synchronicities and coincidences that remind me that I'm on the right path. You don't do any of that. That happens when I personally, for myself, believe and follow the path that has no, has no guide in front of it. It's just me trying to get there. That's the path that is the right one. And it keeps showing me itself that way. And it keeps showing up that way for me saying, hey, you're on the right track. You're on the right track. You're on the right track. <laughs> P.S. The podcast you just listened to, it took a lot of emotional labor to do. It is what I did full time from the beginning of March 2021 to the end of April 2021. Before the pandemic, I used to work five days a week. During the time that I was making this podcast, which was a year after lockdown, I had five days off a week and worked two days. That wasn't what I wanted. I really didn't know how to get it back. I just didn't, everything I did didn't work. And so I put all my effort into figuring out what was going on, which is what this podcast is. I didn't get paid to do it. I don't have advertisers or sponsors for the show. I rely on listeners to fund all the knowledge and all the ahas and revelations that you got from it. You can still do that even if this is years later that you're listening to this because the income from that time period never happened. 
to me, this is much more valuable than the haircuts that I would have done in that time. They would have all outgrown by now, but this podcast is still here to help people grow inside their minds. The link to the donation page is on the website. It takes one click to do it at heyshay.com, H-E-Y-S-H-A-I. Thank you for your time.